Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Subtang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Fever Dreams listeners, we have a special treat for you today. Today marks the glorious restoration of the William Summer era. Some of you may remember Will Summer as a host of Fever Dreams once a millennium ago. Will, reintroduce yourself to our listeners in case they, much like myself, had completely forgotten about who you are, what you're doing, or if you even worked at the Daily Beast anymore. It is funny. You're saying, oh, it's a treat. The guy who ostensibly hosts a show is going to host it today. But yeah, I'm back. I'm back from leave. Thanks to Kelly for keeping lit on things with you while I was gone. I'm happy to be back with the crew here. Just to introduce myself, I like Swin, work at the Daily Beast, and I love talking about right-wing media and conspiracy theories and internet and all that fun stuff. So I'm back in time for the one-year anniversary of Fever Dreams. I believe this episode is the one-year anniversary episode that we're recording right now. And then we're also celebrating Wednesday when this episode comes out, March 23rd at 2 p.m. Eastern. We're going to have a Twitter space, which is kind of like a clubhouse type thing. It's an audio environment and all your favorite Fever Dreams hosts will be hanging out and discussing the one-year anniversary. Have you ever done Twitter spaces before? Yeah, I have. I'm kind of a clout lord on that community gotcha this will be my first time do i call it a twitter space or a twitter spaces i mean look <laughs> i was about to really be like oh it's a twitter space dumbass no. <laughs> i think we're all learning i think it's a twitter space but it should be fun if you enjoy fever dreams i think it'll be a cool time to look back on the past year of the podcast and you're me and swin and kelly talking about the podcast and what's next well a couple of bitter sweet things before we get on with the actual episode number one I don't want to get too sentimental about it, but I remember when we were recording pilot episodes for this that never actually published online. And I remember that one of them had a segment that was entirely you and me talking about how I kept binge watching the OC during the pandemic. Like at some point, now that we're m more than a year into this thing, I want to dig that audio file out if it's stored anywhere on some cloud or some account or somewhere. And just, I don't know where I would publish it. Maybe I'll go rogue and just dedicate an entire Daily Beast article to it. But I was very fascinated by us talking about the politics and the social commentary of Ryan and the rest of the OC gang. I'm really upset that that's not actually a full episode. I have no idea if you will remember this at all, Will. Where is this headed, Swift? <laughs> I mean, can we just get to the big news? So having said that, now that I've gotten all misty-eyed about us recording pilot episodes and everything that's happened in the past year, we do have a bit of, like I was saying, some bittersweet news. Yes. You get one host, you lose a host. That's how it works on this podcast. I'm back, but unfortunately, we're losing Swin. Swin is off to Rolling Stone. He's going to live the almost famous lifestyle. He's going to jump off the roofs of houses into pools or whatever. He's back. So, Swin, tell us all about it. You're off. Well... I was told that I was getting a senior gig at Us Weekly, but I have to settle for Rolling Stone magazine. I'm going to be joining or rejoining, I should say, Noah Shackman, who until recently was editor-in-chief of The Daily Beast, is now running the show over at RS. My last day at The Daily Beast, and therefore also as a Fever Dreams podcast host, will be in mid-April, so in about a month from now. Friday, April 15th, will be my last day at The Beast. And I... Don't have to get into it now, but I'm going to get way too teary-eyed if I talk about it too much. Being at the Beast has been the best job I've ever had. Again, I'll talk a lot more about it later. And also, 
not to get too dramatic about it, but it has been a blast and a legit honor to be hosting and founding Fever Dreams with you, Will. You humble me with how much better you are at this than I am. (laughs) Wasn't that nice? Okay, cool. Well, we still got you for a couple more weeks, so should we dive right on into it? Let's do it. We can save the sentimentality for a future day. And once again, the Twitter Spaces is happening on Wednesday, March 23rd at 2 p.m. Eastern. You can look at the Daily Beast Twitter account or our Twitter accounts to find the link, and it should be a fun thing. So, you know, interact with listeners. Come on by. Okay. All right. First of all, Swin, I am talking to you live from Occupy DC. The DC is currently besieged by the trucker convoy. This is this kind of the imitation of the Canadian convoy that has been sort of bubbling up for a little bit. And and it was kind of a flop at first. And now they're terrorizing individual DC people. So I thought on this week's episode, we could kind of dive into what's up with the truckers. Right. Okay. So I'm in ensconced right now in a suburb of Cincinnati, Ohio. I am far removed from the occupied DC or is it more of a Mad Max scenario right now or does it have the aesthetic of like escape from New York or escape from LA? I'll tell you what, I mean, I'm not quite sure how to parse the differences between those three, but I do think it's certainly more Mad Max than most things happening in the district these days. So to kind of set it up, right, I mean, so this is the one of the several convoys that tried to imitate the Canadian truckers who were inspired by their opposition to vaccine requirements for truckers. And so initially, this thing kind of started out as the thing against COVID vaccine mandates or mask mandates or what have you. But now a lot of those mandates are gone. And it sort of seems like the air is coming out of the anti-lockdown movement, the anti-mandate movement. And certainly it's kind of been overshadowed by Ukraine. So nevertheless, the truckers arrived in in D.C. They encamped outside the city at a racetrack in Hagerstown, Maryland, uh, so to the north of the city. And for a while, it was kind of like they didn't really know what they were up to. Again, how many showed up? That's a great question. I mean, I think it's dozens of trucks. Okay, so not like the gargantuan hordes that they were hyping up for weeks. Right, exactly. I mean, the whole idea here was that they would imitate the truckers in Canada and shut down the capital and just like gridlock us and make it the honking ever present and what have you. But I don't know, they could like resupply a giant or something. It's not that many. And so as a result, it sort of seems like they were our reporter, Zach Patrizzo, went to the camp and was was keeping up with them. But basically, there's also because of kind of like post 9-11 restrictions in D.C., you can't like they're not going to let you just park a truck in front of a Congress and sort of the White House. Right. And also other restrictions that have cropped up since late 2020. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like something that happened, let's say on January 7th, they put these rules in place. And so, like, for example, I can tell you, I tried to drive a U-Haul a couple of blocks from Congress once while I was moving and they were like, absolutely not off the road. So I don't think you can bring in dozens of trucks. And so as a result, they were a little stymied by that. And first they tried last week, they tried just driving around the beltway, but there are just not enough of them to really make a presence. And so it'd be occasionally (laughs) like they'd get lost. They were like, we're going to take up four lanes of traffic. Right. There are like a good amount of trucks that come in and out of the D.C. area on a daily basis. Like if you had no idea what this like MAGA or crypto MAGA trucker convoy was, you you wouldn't be completely remiss to mistake in it for, oh, there are just trucks on the highway or there are trucks on the road. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, so, so they have some Trump flags and they're getting broken up and stuff. And so basically they seem to have realized like, okay, well, we're just burning all this gas. We're not having a good time. Which, thanks to you, Joe Biden, is very expensive. Which is more expensive, right which, which is a great move on Biden's part to foil the truckers. But so they're, they're driving around. And then more recently, they've said, okay, we're going to go into the district and harass, terrorize individual Washingtonians, which, when you think about it, is really like a sort of step down from the original goal, right? The original goal was like, bring the nation to its knees until our demands are met. Now they don't really have demands, and they're just like arguing with drivers. And so this is kind of where, where I want to where I, I want to take us, because this is, you know, over the past week or so, th- these attempts to get into the district because they were blocked a lot by police barricades and really these kind of like almost like trial by combat showdowns with average Washingtonians. We saw this one where they blocked in a Tesla driver and we're talking about doing a citizen's arrest. And, you know, when they start talking about citizen's arrest with this crew, that's bad news or really anybody talking about a citizen's arrest, I guess. 
But then more recently, they've been, I got to say, for professional truck drivers, they love getting in car crashes. I've seen at least two car crashes about this from this crew. You might say, wait, how do we know? Will, are you out there on the Beltway? No. Like January 6th riders, they're constantly live streaming one another and providing evidence, right? So there's there's this one where they collide with a guy, and then basically the trucker does a hit and run. There's another where I got a real kick out of this one where this guy is just kind of doing his narration and saying, like, look at these liberals in their scum city. They want it. We can put the audio here. He's like, this is what Democrats love. They love mass transit. They love building up. They love just putting millions of people in a square mile radius. I mean, look at LA, look at New York, look at DC, all those places and look at the crap crime they have. Yell out the window, get to work. Oh shit. This is what liberals do. They gather together in cities. And then supposedly there's a kid in the car with him. And he's just going like, he's in like bumper to bumper traffic. How old is the kid? It's a baby. You hear the baby in the background. Oh, okay. So it's not a child who's conscious of what's happening and is being subjected to this. Okay, good. Right. And so he's going like, oh, these liberal trash. And then it goes, he just rear ends somebody. And so it's like, boom. It reminded me of the famous Kelsey Grammer stand-up set where he's going like really pontificating and he falls off the stage. So these guys keep getting in crashes. With The Daily Beast had a story about them getting in some kind of a fracas with a pedestrian. I guess the question is, what do these guys want? Swin, do you have any thoughts on that? They want Joe Biden to be put in the anti-pedophile dungeon. Is that it? Yeah, I mean, that's essentially it. I should say, I think that's one of the many things. I mean, like they want Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi to take a time out from pedophilia. And also, they're not a big fan of like... N95 masks. Right. So initially it was, as you said, I mean, this whole thing was originally premised on COVID stuff, but because so many of the rules have been lifted, it's become a lot more diffuse. The New York Times, the Washington Post have had some stories about like what exactly the truckers are up to now. Part of it has become just sort of like the kind of classic thing among this movement these days, which is sort of oppositional defiance disorder, which is saying we're mad at the police because they won't let us terrorize the city. And so now we're going to show the cops what's what. There's like a ton of QAnon stuff on these on a lot of these trucks. People are saying, well, we're not going to leave the city until Biden is out of office because this is a stolen election. Well, good luck with that. Shocking that there's a lot of Q merch on these trucks. I never would have predicted any of that quite a shock there's a guy who said we're gonna go we're not leaving until the black lives matter paint is off the street near the white house well it's kind of a much much smaller goal when you put it that way i think the climax of this this whole saga or that maybe the thing that kind of sums it up is a video posted by zach patrizzo of a single cyclist driving very slowly on the mall in front of the truckers and just utterly driving them insane because you know it is kind of funny it's like you gridlock us we gridlock you and so this has just sort of driven them nuts the gateway pundit of course, a right-wing blog sums this up as a far-left control freak that agitates truckers. It reads, far-left control freak gets in front of trucker convoy on his bike and pedals slowly to agitate truckers. First of all, all-time perfect headline. Couldn't have gotten it better or to flow more beautifully. Second of all, these are just these guys who want to pretend to be tough guys who are just getting owned by a cyclist. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. What's the larger takeaway here? I mean, I think it's basically that the trucker convoy, and I think you could say certainly a, a larger sense of the MAGA movement, has basically become kind of like a free-floating temper tantrum. This is not really like a protest as we would think of it in a traditional way with goals or demands. It's sort of like, to get at the heart of it, they just seem really mad that their trucker thing flopped and that now they're, with what remaining energy they have, they're going to they're gonna just harass people in Washington. Right. It's the truck version of when you're at Starbucks ordering a coffee for Trump is my president in the year 2022. Yeah, so sick. When you're like, what's my name? It's Let's Go Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, speaking of something that I think has a very similar vibe of insane, but really pitch black humor. Well, have you been following the Republican Ohio Senate primary at all? I know I talk a lot about Ohio on this pod. I'm an incredibly proud adoptive son of the great state of Ohio. But even if I weren't living here right now, I would be obsessed with this race. Do you feel the same way about this at all? I'm nowhere near Ohio, but I'm getting hyped up on this Senate race. I mean, this is what a volatile number of personalities. You know it's good when the hillbilly elegy guy is not the most interesting character in the race. Not at all. So Swin, give us the rundown on what's going on in your home state. Okay, well, this primary contest, this will very likely pick the next senator from Ohio, not just the Republican Senate nominee, 
but the next senator once 2023 rolls around. So this primary race represents, at least to me, where contemporary American politics is in a way that I don't think any other race currently going on truly does, in a way that is more comically vibrant than a lot of the other primaries on the right around the country right now. This one, for roughly the past year, has just been a constant, nonstop game of each candidate trying to out-Trump the other, try to be their own version of Donald Trump in a way that another person in the race isn't doing, trying to outflank the other candidates on their right when it comes to 2020 election lies or literally any culture grievance that they can just pull out of a hat. It's just if you're looking for a bloodthirsty and just completely squawking Republican primary in this midterm election year, this frothingly rises to the top of all of them. I cannot think of another one that is as insane as this all kind of climaxes with this real like debate showdown last week. But run down, if you will, who kind of our top three characters, our dramatis personae are. You got top four. You have Josh Mandel who has been the frontrunner for a while, but not so much anymore in the polls. He's a perennial candidate in Ohio. A lot of people think that he was uh, rising so high uh, for a while, almost purely on name ID in the state. Um, he, like all the rest, have tried to do his biggest and baddest impression of Donald Trump, but just without any of the actual true-to-heart commitment or, I guess, what you could call Trumpian charisma of the former president. You have uh, Mike Gibbons, who is a man in his 70s, that's going to be important later, who fancies himself the MAGA businessman and keeps trying to find news ways to sound Trumpier than Josh Mandel, but not really pulling it off. Speaking of guys who aren't really pulling it off, even though they're trying to reform themselves from a past never Trumper to a current Trump, 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 Trump guy, we have J.D. Vance. Famous from the Ron Howard movie, Hillbilly LG. He's the only one of the top tier candidates in this MAGA race right now who has had a Netflix movie made out of something he wrote, directed by Ron Howard, starring Amy Adams. Eat your heart out. Mike Gibbons. And obviously, J.D. Vance has the you know, distinction of being the one of these top tier candidates in this race who is on Tucker Carlson, uh, maybe as often as he is drawing breath through his nose. And then you got Jane Timpkin. I highly recommend that listeners look up an ad if they haven't seen it yet that Jane Timpkin and her campaign put out recently, where she is basically making fun of all the other male candidates in the race, suggesting, not even really suggesting, she's just basically saying they have small dicks. What did she say? Let's play the ad. I'm Jane Timken. We all know guys who overcompensate for their inadequacies, and that description fits the guys in the Senate race to a T. Well, I'm different. I'm the MAGA conservative with a backbone. So she's basically saying she is the one who actually has the cojones, and nobody else has the big dick MAGA energy that Jane Timken has. So this all comes to a climax at this debate. And Josh Mandel, he's been like wild and out even before this. Oh, just flailingly throwing like metaphorical punches left and right. Like just in a way that I don't think is even really politically savvy. But to your point, and we're going to play audio for, for a second for listeners who aren't caught up on the weekend's debate. Over the weekend, I believe it was FreedomWorks hosted um, a forum between these candidates. Will, do you think it was an opportunity for them to discuss high-minded ideals about the tensions between more Reaganite strains of conservatism versus the Trumpism of today? What do you think happened during this onstage debate? No, man, it's a it's a lucha libre opportunity <laughs> because these guys threw down. So basically, to sum up what happens here, we got Mike Gibbons, rich guy, who basically calls Josh Mandel a broke boy, and he says, you've never worked in the private sector. Now, for those of us who aren't as steep in this stuff, you might say, well, whatever. But saying someone's never worked in the private sector is like insulting their mother in a Republican primary, because this is typically something you throw at a Democrat, because maybe they're like a professor, or they've been working in local government, or in the media, or what have you. Oh, and Josh Bendel, he's a Marine. He'll have you know that he's a Marine. Exactly. So he goes off on the private sector thing, because he's like, well, I was a Marine, now, notably, not privatized yet. <laughs> But it's sort of like, it kind of gives the lie to the classic private sector insult because it's like, oh, they're basically like, come on, man, like, don't bring that up with a Republican. So Josh Mandel just like gets up in his face. I've really never seen anything like it in a debate. Josh Mandel, Few Dreams is a family podcast, but he calls Mike Givens a pussy. Really unbelievable stuff here. There were people online who were 
trying to figure out who actually said the P word. If it was Mandel or Gibbons, do we have a Zapruder tape of which one of them actually said it? I mean, I, I think I know. <laughs> <laughs> I think I can judge the two men. Regardless, basically devolved into the two of them sniping each other. Let's play that audio right now. You Let's may not it. understand this because you've I never been in the private. No, you don't. I do. You've never been in the I private sector it. in your right, entire I've worked, sir. Josh. Squat, Josh. Two chores in Iraq. Don't tell me I haven't worked. Don't tell me I haven't worked. You don't know squat. It's okay, right? You don't know squat. Two tours in Iraq, don't tell me I haven't worked. Back off, buddy, you're gonna you back off. Oh, come on, come on. Never, that'll happen. Sit down. Never. Watch. Watch. We'll square it away with the wrong dude. No, no, you're dealing with the wrong guy. You watch what happens. You watch what happens. And then JD Vance gets up and he goes, like, I gotta say, Josh, this is not cool how you're bringing up your military service to go after people. Right, because JD Vance jumps in there with like, okay, I can play the Marine card too. I enlisted in the Marines. My family has generations of Marines. How dare you use it as a political cudgel? That's a cheap move. And then the, uh, some people in the audience start applauding him. And Josh Mendel just is kind of staring him blankly because I'm not sure he <laughs> was necessarily expecting that. But let's get one thing clear. I would bet a lot of money that Josh Mendel planned all of that. It just didn't go the way he expected it to. Let's be real. He wasn't actually challenging a 70 or 70 plus year old man to a fist fight. He was pretending to do it because he thought to himself, this is what's going to make me look tough in this primary. This is what the MAGA base voters are going to love. And this is what's going to re-energize my campaign after I've been sagging a little bit behind this 70 year old or so elderly man. It does kind of have that vibe of like candidates will come to a debate with like a certain zinger in their hands. And it kind of seems like he came to it with like, I'm going to go off on this guy. <laughs> and like just get up in his face but Swin, I, I guess my question here is really the question is like is trump going to endorse in this race what does trump world think where are they falling well that's the thing the upper echelons of trump world are so scattered on this race to the point where several of the campaigns have been making a point of hiring basically whatever veterans of trump world or trump campaigns that they can to serve on their staff hoping that would attract some attention from mar-a-lago so far our reporting shows that former President Trump is more than happy to sit back and just watch these guys tear into each other and try to tear each other's guts out. And he sees no benefit to endorsing any of them right now because, quite frankly, he and his team aren't sure which one is going to be a surefire winner with this thing. It is really up in the air who is going to be the eventual Republican nominee on this thing. So he's just enjoying the show, refusing to endorse anybody, and just hanging around while they all make trips to Florida, trying to beseech him, and just basically continuing to debase themselves in public over and over again in the Buckeye State to try to win a pat on the head from him or his approval. But what I will give you is a criminally incomplete but somewhat illuminating rundown of what Trump tells people close to him in private about some of these top-tier MAGA candidates in Ohio. Number one, Gibbons. You might be surprised to learn that Trump doesn't really give a shit about him, doesn't really think much of him. People close to Trump characterize it as he couldn't pick Gibbons out of a lineup. Mandel, and we've spoken about this on the pod before, Trump's views on Mandel get way more interesting because he has told numerous people who he knows and that Mandel is, and this is a direct quote from the former leader of the free world, fucking weird. He has almost ceaselessly gossiped to confidants about alleged details of Mandel's sex life and talking about how something's not right about the guy and just like being this really like hideous TMZ style gossip about this, this fucking Ohio candidate. He's basically the equivalent of those TikToks that are like, is anyone going to talk about what a weird vibe this guy's given off? In a recent meeting when Mandel got in there to see Trump at Mar-a-Lago, he was basically brought along by Club for Growth's David McIntosh, who's one of Mandel's top allies uh, in this fight. And our reporting showed that Trump almost immediately after the meeting wrap, started bitching to people around him that Mandel was even there. He was saying he got too short notice that Mandel would be there. He thought he was only going to be talking to Macintosh, and that he doesn't really even like being in the same room as Josh Mandel. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe Mandel's campaign catches fire again enough to the point where it becomes inevitable that Trump has to endorse him no matter what. But having said that, if you can't really stand being in the same room with the guy, especially if you're Donald J. Trump, it doesn't 
really increase the chances that Trump is going to endorse Mandel, at least for the time being. Now, I'm going to skip Timken because that's, I'm sorry, that, that's a little boring right now. That's a little light on the charisma. At least Josh Mandel's getting bullied. Right. <laughs> But when it comes to J.D. Vance, Trump is still doesn't want to endorse the guy, not 100 percent on him. But one thing that he has told multiple people, and this is a direct quote, he has used this exact phrase to describe J.D. Vance, a handsome son of a bitch. I mean, that's all the endorsement you need. (laughs) So Trump may not end up politically endorsing the guy, but when he sees him on TV, when he sees J.D. Vance in person, Trump makes a point of telling people that this guy is hot. This guy is a dime. I don't know how many of our listeners have recently seen a photo of J.D. Vance. You guys be the decider. It is one of those things that is kind of like, huh. It goes into the sort of the what does Trump think people look like file. Right, When he would be like, these are such like beautiful, beautiful soldiers and stuff like that. Right. Does he think J.D. Vance looks like a beautiful soldier? I mean, I I guess you could argue that he once was a beautiful soldier. But is that what Trump thinks his mind like a beautiful general in the U.S. military dresses and looks like and affects like? So to wrap this up, there's now all these guys are dealing with the fallout from this showdown, this fight or near fight. And I was struck Gibbons gave a talk radio interview and he was asked about it and he said, I don't even remember anything about it. And it's like, this guy blacked out or something? I don't know if we want that guy as a senator. If he's just like, oh, this is like probably the most momentous moment of the campaign, he can't even remember. But, you know, I think this is a Senate race. This is kind of the fun part of the Senate of any race where the guys are really like really going at each other. So, Swin, you've reported that wealthy, super wealthy guy, Peter Thiel, has been pushing J.D. Vance as his pick, encouraging Trump to endorse him at Mar-a-Lago. And that ties in with who we have on the pod today. Who do we have? It's not Peter Thiel himself. No, unfortunately, we try and we try and try to book him. Maybe we'll get him next week or the week after that. But next up, we are welcoming to the pod for his debut appearance, Mr. Ryan Mack, a New York Times reporter who's based in Los Angeles. He's been doing some very illuminating reporting recently about Peter Thiel, who, in addition to being the billionaire entrepreneur and noted gawker slayer, he's also been a hand behind the throne and a top money man for an assortment of large-scale MAGA projects in recent years. So stick around after the break for our conversation with Ryan. It's going to be a good one. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This week, we have the distinct pleasure of welcoming our next guest, Ryan Mack, once of BuzzFeed News and now a tech reporter at another online upstart known as The New York Times. For years, Ryan has perfected covering the chaotic intersections of modern technology, social media, politics, and foreign affairs, as well as the raging cauldron of online conspiracy theory and misinformation. You can follow him on Twitter.com at rmac18, and you should definitely follow his reporting over at nytimes.com. Ryan, welcome to Fever Dreams. How the hell are you doing? Thanks for having me. That was a great intro. I've never had anything like that before. (laughs) When we are welcoming fellow Asians to the podcast, (laughs) particularly Asian men, to help me in my ever-running attempt to outnumber the white guys who I have to do this thing with, I always try to be resplendently complimentary, so you come back and stage a coup against Jesse and Will. Incredible. Well, I'm glad we got that Asian part in there, too, so now we have all the bases covered. (laughs) 
Okay, so diving into it, there's a lot we want to talk to you about today, but I guess we'll have to maybe limit it to digging in on Mr. Peter Thiel. Last month, you published a big story at the Times headlined, The Rights Would Be Kingmaker, and it reads, Peter Thiel, one of Donald J. Trump's biggest donors in 2016, has reemerged as a prime financier of the Make America Great Again movement. Obviously, Peter Thiel has been something of a professional fixation or fascination, I should say, of yours for a number of years now. I can say roughly the same thing about myself and other people <laughs> who I've worked with. Tell us how and why you first started down this investigative path, which, correct me if I'm wrong, began at Forbes magazine for you? Yeah, it did. Fixation would be a interesting word. I don't know if that's... But yeah, Forbes is where I... I got my start as a journalist. And when I was there, I started kind of as a cub reporter covering the intersection of wealth and technology. I was doing these as helping on the billionaires list, which are like the Forbes 400 and the world's billionaires list, which kind of rank the world's richest people. And I was always based in San Francisco for Forbes and covering, I guess, the folks out of Silicon Valley. So talking to people in Silicon Valley for no reasons other than their worth and they're like tabulating their net worth calculations, basically. And so you meet a lot of interesting folks doing this number crunching. It's a lot of reporting that goes into those final numbers. And Peter Thiel was part of that remit. So I started reporting on him about, about 10 years ago. And basically, I've continued ever since. When I was at Forbes, I guess the biggest story that I broke on him was that he was funding the Gawker lawsuit. Right. You were the first one to confirm, like, like dead to rights confirm what had long time been a suspicion particularly among people at Gawker, that Peter Thiel was secretly funding lawsuits, including the Hulk Hogan lawsuit against Gawker Media. Yeah. I mean, Matt Drange and I, who's now a Business Insider, but yeah, it was a rumor. I mean, and I think the rumor was not even Peter Thiel, but that someone was funding the lawsuit. I kind of had heard about this over, I guess, during the period of the trial, which was, I think, what, spring of 2016, middle of 2016, and just kind of started casing my sources. It took a couple months, and eventually we felt we were comfortable enough and in a place to publish it. And yeah, it was probably the still the largest scoop of my career. So back then, and we're going to get into where he is now all these years later, was he known within the billionaire communities and in Silicon Valley as the big hard right guy that we know of him today? I remember people frequently referring to him as a libertarian, but I'm not sure if I would have necessarily pegged him at that time to be, oh, he would definitely be a gigantic Trump guy or Chris Kobach guy in the near future. Yeah, that he was a self-styled, and I mean, I guess that was his brand, libertarianism, I guess. And I mean, beyond that, as a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, he, of course, traced his money. He co-founded PayPal. He started Founders Fund. He became the first institutional investor in Facebook, co-founded Palantir. And in, in all that, I guess his whole branding of himself was that he was a libertarian who wanted to invest and make futuristic bets in futuristic technologies. And so he had this like carefully cultivated image of being a libertarian, going against the grain. I remember just these series of profiles that he would do. Every couple of years, he would come up and do like a series of interviews uh, that would get blown up into big pieces. I remember Forbes did a piece on him. The New Yorker had a piece on him. And that was really what he liked talking. He liked talking about weird things like building cities in the middle of the ocean on islands. There'd be no, I guess, large government jurisdiction or seasteading. Seasteading. There you go. And he would talk about life extension. And it would always be like these like kind of weird, quirky things. Drinking the blood of innocence so you live forever. <laughs> like what I don't think that was one of them. I mean, that was a later rumor that was attached to him about taking in the blood of youth. Yeah, but... well, let's get to the truth of it. What is up with the blood thing? As you said, I mean, one of the great rumors about Peter Thiel is that he has supported or likes this idea of, of taking young people's blood to empirically sort of rejuvenate older people. What is the truth of that? Oh, man, I'd have to revisit the reporting. Okay, on that. okay, okay. <laughs> I mean, I can delve into it, which is that there was an entrepreneur who claimed that he had funding from Peter Thiel and that his business was basically exploring whether or not to take the blood of from young people and inject them into the older folks to extend their lives. But yeah, it was a claim. And it morphed from there into kind of this legend that is now attached to Teal. One day, Will, we're going to have to do an episode that's all about, does that work? It can be a news <laughs> you can use episode of Fever Dreams. Just have Will pass out in the middle of a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> as he's injected, yeah. I am roughly three decades older than Will Summer, so I would be the beneficiary <laughs> okay, there you in go. this regard. So, okay, flash forward 
all of these years because mm-hmm. you you broke that news in the middle or late Obama era before Trump began with his political ascent. So while Trump is running for president in 2015 and 2016, then he becomes president. And also after he very much loses re-election to Joe Biden, Peter Thiel is there. Sometimes he's not is quite so there. Sometimes he recedes because he gets embarrassed too much by President Trump. But he he's there. He is still very much in the Mar-a-Lago Trump orbit. So what has that arc been like for Peter Thiel? I kind of view the Gawker and interest in Trump, like the Gawker situation, the interest in Trump as like almost one in the same. It's it's very much the same time frame. He's revealed as the funder of uh, Hulk Hogan's Gawker lawsuit in I think May 2016. He then goes and becomes a delegate, a California delegate for Trump, or he announces that he will be a California delegate for Trump. And then he does that July 2016 RNC speech, probably the most I mean, memorable speech of that RNC, where he he says, I'm proud to be K, I'm proud to be a Republican, I'm proud to support Donald Trump. And he then puts at the kind of the tail end of the campaign, I think that October, he puts in $1.25 million into the campaign, kind of at a time where Trump is floundering a little bit. He has the Access Hollywood tape. And I mean, he consolidates his support from there. He becomes a member of the transition team, helping to appoint members into the Trump administration. He appoints a lot of his former employees in some cases. But I guess through the Trump presidency, it's kind of an up and down period. He becomes somewhat unhappy with some aspects of the Trump presidency, and he kind of recedes from 2018 into the kind of 2020 timeframe and disappears. He doesn't support Trump in the reelection campaign financially and is very quiet for a period. He supports a lot of kind of MAGA candidates with like Chris Kobach 2020, but there is no Trump donation. And now we kind of see him popping up again to, I guess, support the larger MAGA movement. Right. And he's definitely cuddling back up to Donald Trump himself right now in the post-presidency. But towards the end of the presidency, there was this moment where he wasn't coming out and publicly disavowing him. But we reported at the Daily Beast that he was very fed up with the way Trump was handling the dawn of the coronavirus pandemic and thought it was a clown show, thought it was embarrassing, and basically said, although this doesn't strike so true now, of course, uh, not very much a surprise if you know how politically mercurial Peter Thiel can be. But he basically starts saying, okay, I got to start supporting people who are the real deal. I'll basically support people and Coulter likes now. <laughs> Which he's done for a while. She and him held a that fundraiser for Chris Kobach. So they're very much politically aligned and they're, they're good friends. So, but your story was about now and the forward-looking aspect of this. What makes him such a would-be kingmaker on the mainstream American right and within the MAGA movement now in the shadow of the Trump presidency? What's going on that he has his stakes in that our listeners may be missing? So I think he sees an opportunity to build out the MAGA movement beyond Trump. Like I reported this out with Lisa Lair, who's one of our my colleagues on the political desk, but like one of the big questions for the GOP is like, what happens next after Trump? And there's a concern that there's not enough support within the ranks of the Senate, less so in the House, but also the House for, I guess, his policies and his goals. And so like with Teal, there was an opportunity there. And he had two protégés of his in Blake Masters, his former COO at his family office, and J.D. Vance, an employee of a former employee of his at one of his venture funds. They kind of stepped up and wanted to run in two Senate races, Arizona for Masters and Ohio for, for J.D. Vance. He's funded these two guys to the tune of $10 million each, just massive donations for two kind of unknown guys, and as well as kind of selecting other candidates to run in House races as well. So yeah, he's, he's funded about I get more than a dozen folks at this point heading into the 2022 midterms. What would you say is the, is there a particular thing that all of these candidates he's picking have in common versus what is it that gets Teal, I mean, besides his personal connections to Vance and Masters, I mean, what is it that gets him to pick the candidates he picks versus any other Republican candidate? So, I mean, you look at who he's funded. I mean, I think I isolate Vance and Masters on like one side, given that the amount is so large and that they have personal connections to him. I think some of it is like shoring up kind of his Republican connections. So he's donated to people like Kevin McCarthy, like very, like, I guess, pretty standard donations. But at the same time, in the House side, he's also supporting people like Harriet Hageman, the challenger to Liz Cheney and Joe Kent, a kind of very far right candidate in Washington. For me, I think it's reactionary in some ways. I mean, it's certainly, I mean, the Hageman bet, for example, he threw a fundraiser for her at his Miami compound is a means of kind of solidifying his his support of 
with Trump. A lot of it ha- comes down to anti-immigration, a lot of kind of anti-wokeness as well. Um, a lot of folks that talk about critical race theory, for example. It seems like an amalgamation of, I guess, typical kind of MAGA grievances at this point. But also for Teal, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment as well. Well, on top of that, you also highlighted in your reporting that, I mean, this isn't that surprising given where the mainstream of the GOP is right now, but a lot of his money is in effect going to prop up at different state, local, and perhaps federal levels the Trumpist big lie that the 2020 presidential election was rigged when it, of course, was not. You quote a senior fellow at New America, a named Lee Drutman, saying, quote, when you have a funder who is actively elevating candidates who are denying the legitimacy of elections, that is a direct assault on the foundation of democracy, end quote. Can you get into that a little bit more? Yeah, this is actually really interesting because like, I mean, first of all, I'm not going to get anywhere close to Peter Till to ask him this question, but like he hasn't really commented really on the 2020 election and whether or not he views it as legitimate. But he has certainly funded candidates that have either towed the line or completely crossed it and said that the election is fraudulent. You look at just like the the Twitter videos and posts from J.D. Vance and Blake Masters, for example. I think in some ways, like he may not believe that himself, but it is very much a political bet that he needs to do this in order to like solidify his base among kind of the MAGA Trump loyalists. And the only way to do that is to fund candidates that disavow the election and believe that January 6th wasn't that big of a deal. So, Ryan, reading your piece here from February, I'm struck by this essay Peter Thiel wrote back in 2009, where he says mm-hmm. he'd come to believe that, quote, no longer believe that freedom and democracy are compatible. I mean, that's it, folks. To me, that's kind of the tell, right? I mean, you can talk about, oh, Peter Thiel, he's backlash to cancel culture or whatever. But like, I mean, that's it, right? Where he basically, I guess, how much should we read into that? Because to me, reading that, basically, this is a guy laying out his manifesto saying that democracy is getting in the way of my crazy libertarian ideas. Uh, And so essentially, I'm going to team up with some people who are also hostile to democracy, which is to say the MAGA movement. He's calling people like Liz Cheney, who voted to impeach Trump after the Capitol riot, calling them traitors. I mean, this seems to be like at its heart, just essentially an anti-democratic push from Teal. I'm curious how much you do you think I'm reading too much into that? How much do you think that statement really kind of sums up what he believes in? I think it's interesting seeing what people take out of that essay that's the cato essay right in 2000 yeah that's that's got to be that one and i mean that's the same essay he wrote that women probably should not have the right to vote you, you got to see both sides <laughs> i mean that piece about no longer believing that f- that freedom and democracy are compatible i mean i mean i don't know who would write that it's drivel you write it in sophomore year in a seminar and you feel embarrassed if anybody ever finds it in the college library in the future and you compare that to i mean supposedly being a libertarian, right? And like, it's just that statement and, and that idea of being a libertarian is just like not compatible. So in reporting on Peter Thiel, I realized that there are plenty of contradictions in his ideology, in how he approaches the world, in his actions. And yeah, I, I mean, I think you can kind of see based on the people I guess he's associating with. He also is very close to someone named Curtis Yarvin, who's known online as Mencius Moldbug, who has kind of blogged about his desire to return to a time of feudalism and neo-feudalism, I guess, and not have people vote, I guess. For me, I guess it kind of gives the game away. You can do all this stuff where he's funding all these like cultural endeavors or what have you. And then, I mean, this is kind of like the, oh my God, he admitted kind of moment here <laughs> because this is like the key to it all. But anyways, this is me kind of pontificating here. But, you know, speaking of those cultural endeavors, BuzzFeed, your former employer, just had an article about Peter Thiel funding some kind of crazy anti-woke film festival. I think it's sort of the unsaid thing with a lot of these either what they call the post-left or kind of various reactionary publications. True or not, I think there's always a suspicion that Peter Thiel's funding it. I mean, we've been talking a lot about his contributions to campaigns, but what is he up to on kind of a broader cultural level? So it was a great story by Joe Bernstein over at BuzzFeed News. But yeah, he was funding this post-left. Is that is that is that the term post-left film festival? Yeah, I think that's the term people are using for these kind of like art festival in New York. We're not going to say we're Republicans, but like we're this is kind of this backlash to supposedly like political correctness. I had heard about this and actually Curtis Yarvin, I think, was just didn't he speak at that? But I was like so struck by like how jokey it felt like when people said like, oh, this thing was being funded by Peter Thiel. And I thought like, is this just a weird joke or is it like real? And 
it ended up being real. And like Teal gets involved in a lot of these weird, very kind of out of left field endeavors. He funds this one institute in the in the Bay Area as well called I think the Imitao Institute, which is kind of like a Rene Girardian discussion group or seminar place or whatever. And you're like, how do you have time to like do all this stuff? And and like why get involved with this weird stuff? But I guess it's just like kind of part and parcel of who he is. Do you know how much weird stuff I would get involved with if I had billions of dollars? <laughs> sure, let's hear it. What would be the first thing you would fund? Well, definitely the blood thing. The Definitely the blood of the youth. No, actually, parody. I don't actually mean that. Moving on. <laughs> so speaking of weird things that Teal gets involved with and really throws his money down the money hole for, J.D. Vance. For a candidate who is at least messaging, I'm not saying I believe much of it, if any of it, is particularly authentic. But for a political candidate who is trying to sort of enshrine his version of Trumpism in this populist, anti-corporate, anti-big tech messaging, again, emphasis on the term messaging as opposed to what the policies would actually be if he ever got to Capitol Hill, what is Peter Thiel's like interest and vested interest in this guy, given that if what he's saying actually were in good faith enacted in policy, that would be a big if, it would actually be bad for someone like Peter Thiel, at least for his business or pocketbook, probably. I think it's just a messaging game at this point. I think with Vance, he has started kind of in the hole being anti-Trump in 2016, having all this messaging out there where he said he wouldn't support the Republican candidate at the time. And now he's obviously had to reverse that. Now he's kind of had to lean into this very populist message so much so that he is now effectively anti-business. He is like the most anti-business candidate there is in that race, which is supremely ironic given that he's being funded by a guy. Money came from investing in Facebook and being the first kind of institutional investor in Facebook. I don't know how Peter Thiel resolves those contradictions. Maybe he just thinks that those policies won't come into place if J.D. Vance does get into the Senate and like it's just people will forget about that. It is bizarre. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your awesome reporting with us. Come back anytime. It's been a pleasure having you. Thanks for having me. On this week's installment of our beloved recurring segment, Fresh Hell, Will has an update for all of us from the depths of Alex Jones' world. Will, catch us up to speed on what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. So people know that Alex Jones of InfoWars fame, he's been facing these lawsuits after saying the, the Sandy Hook shooting was a false flag, making all these insinuations about it. He's defaulted in a lot of these cases because of his courtroom antics, so which means he's basically already lost, but they're still kind of going through various processes. So he was supposed to be deposed later this week in Austin, uh, where he lives, for the Connecticut cases. But then yesterday, his lawyer said Alex Jones has an emergency medical situation. A doctor has seen him and he can't be deposed later this week. Now, this might this is kind of like the this sort of kind of classic surprise tactic that he might use to avoid a deposition. So they claimed, oh, a doctor is he's under a doctor's care. It seems really, really serious. You might say on one hand, well, Alex Jones, I look at that guy. He doesn't look like he's in the best health. He has drinking issues. He's pretty heavy set. He's got a red face. So maybe I'd believe he would come down with something. But now the plaintiff's attorneys have pointed out that while supposedly under a doctor's care and receiving emergency tests and all this, Alex Jones was actually just hosting his TV show, you know, and hosting it for four hours. I mean, did he at least blow his nose a few times while hosting the TV show or his online streaming show? I mean, really reading it, I was like, I was like, maybe Alex Jones is going to die. And then they say, well, no, he's just sitting here. And so they say it's very unclear who this doctor is, who says he's sick and all this. But the plaintiffs there, the Sandy Hook parents lawyers pointed out that Alex Jones did have a doctor on his show, a guy named Dr. Ben Marble, who is like a big pro-ivermectin doctor who would appear to be the only doctor that Alex Jones saw during a Monday afternoon. So the idea is that he was perhaps in the care of a guy named Ben Marble, who I guess was maybe doing tests on him in between commercial breaks or what have you. But this reminds me of a, kind of other classic Alex Jones intrigues. One time during a deposition, he claimed he had had a big vat of chili, and so he was struggling to remember his kids' ages, for example. I mean, this guy, he really gets 
gets up to his deposition intrigues. But this new one sort of possibly faking an illness, I think, is a real new level. Did he appear sick at all while he was streaming? At all? I mean, no more than he normally does. Fair. He couldn't even bring himself to fake it. Like, like I could cough a few times while recording this pod with you. And then tell Jackie, yep, see, here's evidence that I had a cold that day. Right. I mean, there's really no evidence that he was sick. And as they pointed out, if this guy can host a show for four or five hours, he can maybe sit for a deposition. So maybe just another courtroom maneuver here that may not pan out for old Alex Jones. Is there going to be any penalty from doing this? I mean, supposedly there are rules against just faking illnesses over and over again so you don't have to get deposed or talk to lawyers that you, the court wants you to. <laughs> well, it's kind of tricky, right? Because he he's already faced sort of the ultimate penalty, which is losing. So he's lost already, and now they're gathering information for the damages. But his lawyer is facing his own sanctions hearing for potentially for his own alleged violations. So I mean, really, the sort of the Alex Jones legal defense is in chaos. So what more can they do to him? I Can they throw him in the brig back in Connecticut? I'm not sure. But I mean, if you're going to fake an illness, you can't go on your <laughs> show afterwards. You got to at least disappear or something like that. Just post your Instagram like you holding a mug of coffee or something in bed in your big old Alex Jones robe. Just something. Just put a little bit of effort into it. Yeah. Oh, uh, eating some chicken noodle soup or something like that. Exactly. Reading Eat, Pray, Love while doing it. So before we go, Ben Marvel, is that his real name? Yeah, no, I'm not making that name up. I mean, this is what's so funny about it. This is one of these guys who had a website where they you would basically go and do an online evaluation and get approved for ivermectin, presumably hydroxychloroquine as well. So this guy, as the lawyers are pointing out, is not exactly maybe the most credible lawyer to say that Alex Jones has some real uh, serious medical issues. Hi, Dr. Marble. It really is like also like a name that you would make up, right? I mean, it's kind of like a George <laughs> Cauldron level of like looking around and saying like, Ben, uh, that of brain pills like what else do you see on the set of the alex jones show so you said ben marble was uh, making appearances on alex jones's stream right yeah yeah he was on the show during the supposed medical incident does he do anything on the show like he's a deranged version of dr phil or i should say even more deranged version of dr phil you know i'm not super familiar with this guy's oeuvre like i said you know he's kind of one of these classic like ivermectin docs who's really like revealing the truth but i mean during the, the show itself there was not like a fake heart attack or something which might have helped sell it On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.